to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, Revelation 17, 10 through 18. Here in verses 10 through 18, we have the mystery of the whore, her friends turned enemies, the war on the lamb and her cosmopolitan rule. Verse 10 informs us after we have read the first nine verses, mystery Babylon, the angel seeing John marvel gives an exposition of this beast that was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. He's now going to give further details concerning the beast and concerning the woman. Note here verse 10. He says that there are seven kings, or we might say seven kingdoms, as also in the book of Daniel. You'll notice that sometimes various parts of the beast will represent kingdoms or not one particular king, but a kingdom over which those kings will rule. They are seven kings, he says. These heads, sacramentally or mystically, they represent seven kings. Or, also notice, a double representation. First we saw that they represented seven hills or mountains. Now we find that these same heads represent something else. Namely, the kings or kingdoms. John Gill comments, by the seven heads are meant so many forms of government which took place successively in the Roman Empire and were all of them idolatrous heads as, and here are the seven, kings, consuls, dictators, decemvirs, tribunes, emperors, and what's the last? What comes after the empire? Well, there's a seventh kingdom. At this time, he says, verse 10, five are fallen. In fact, the sixth was still in place in John's day. The imperial Rome still existed. That was the sixth kingdom. What is the seventh? Five are fallen. The kings are fallen. The consuls gone. Dictators no more. Decemvirs no more. Tribunes at an end. And one, he says, is. That is the sixth. Which one existed in John's day? The one that is. Pagan Rome, its imperial power stood in its might and zenith at that day. The other, he says, is not yet come. There is another that would come and be swept away rather rapidly. He must continue a short space. In other words, a Christian emperor who will not last long at Rome and will be swept away to the east, that is Constantine, or, as the Westminster Annotations note, it intimateth that the Pope's power shall not abide forever. It may seem long to those that suffer under it, but it is short in God's sight and in respect of the eternal happiness of God's saint. Gone in a moment, a kingdom of vanity. Now notice verse 11. The beast is described in more detail. The beast that was and is not even he is the eighth. But wait a second, I thought there were only seven. Well, there are. But he's of the seven. He is the eighth, but of the seven. Note here, 
There is a connection or a blending in of these governments. And he goeth into perdition, this eighth who is of the seven. James Durham comments, Therefore Rome, under none of the first six governments, is the beast here, but under the seventh or the eighth, which in Rome succeeded to emperors. Okay, here you have it. Six are laid out, five are fallen, one is in John's day, then one will succeed, that is the seventh or the eighth. It'll be a revival of Rome, a new Rome or eternal city built on similar but not identical foundations. The emperors or Caesars are succeeded by the sixth, or they are the sixth and are succeeded by the seventh. And that seventh is the last of all, Durham notes. When you come to the end of the book of Revelation, this seventh head is crushed and destroyed. And what happens next? The millennium, then the eternal state. That's it. That's all that happens. Once this beast is crushed, there are no more. This is the final head, the final kingdom, then the final battle and the eternal state. I note then this doctrine. This beast is the power of papal Rome. The final or eschatological beast, not a former ancient pagan beast, not the Medes or the Persians, not the red dragon of Rome as a pagan, no. This succeeds that empire and is the seventh and goes forth till the end of time. Now notice verse 12. What about these horns? What do these represent? The horns also represent kings. And these kings are variously interpreted. All in the main agree they are some kingdoms under the main beastly kingdom. Ten of them means the fullness of them in my view. Some people will enumerate. It's the Saxons and then it's the Danish kingdom and then it's the Gaelic kingdom. Whatever it is, the kingdoms that were under the anti-Christian Rome. These kingdoms are ten in number. These have not received a kingdom as of yet. In John's day, what were these kingdoms? Ragtag bands of people roving the European continent hither, thither, and yon. They were not kings as of yet. Their dominion in God's providence would wait until later. They will receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Now this could mean that their kingdom is one hour, or it could mean they all receive it at the same time. They receive contemporaneously their power, in other words, at one hour. Some people call this Christendom. This is not so. Christendom would put Christ at the top of the kingdom. Who is the top of this kingdom? Christ? No. It is the man of sin. It is the beast and the harlot. It is the successor to the Roman emperors, even the Pontifex Maximus, as he claims for himself, the Bishop of Rome. He is the successor of this kingdom, and he rules these ten kings. They have no kingdom in John's day, but they will by God's providence. And they'll all receive it at the, the same time. This will be popedom, not Christendom. 
He will offer them this fleeting kingdom, not worth possessing. You take pains to enter it, only to lose your pains, you only have it for an hour, or you will have it merely at the same time. They will all receive it. Here notice, who's exalted above the kings of the earth? Is it Christ who they're exalting above them? It's the beast. They're exalting the beast, and they're going to come forth as his executors. These all have one mind. They all think the same way. They all consent together, verse 13, and they'll give their power and strength to the beast. Whatever resources they have, whatever government they have, that's what the two words mean, power and strength, a right to govern externally, a power to govern internally, all of that they will devote up to the beast and say, we are at your disposal, do with us as you please. Their arms, their riches, their civil jurisdiction, all claimed by the popes of Rome. Do you know why they have two keys on the pope's mitre? One represents the key of ecclesiastical rule, and one represents what? The key of civil rule. I am your chief magistrate, says the pope. I am the head of the kings of the earth. He could interdict when he had the zenith of his power. He could make all your marriages, your births, your deaths not available to you. You can't baptize your kids. You can't bury your dead. You can't get married because he had the power of the interdict, as they called it. All you are excommunicated. You're all going to hell until your magistrate does what I say. Then what? Oh, then I'll give you back your salvation. But until your magistrate does what I say, you're all going to hell. That's what he said. It's called an interdict. They give their civil power over to him. Their strength is offered up to the beast. Christendom in reality was mere popedom. And they make war against the lamb through his disciples. They profess to love the lamb, but they wreak havoc upon his wife. Where is she? She's off in the wilderness. She's pushed out of polite society, off into the wilderness, persecuted by them as the red dragon did before. But the lamb shall overcome. The anti-Christian power is no match for the power of Christ. Why? For he is Lord of lords. What does the beast claim? I am Lord of lords. What does Christ say? No, I am. I have all authority in heaven and upon the earth. So all the nations must be my disciples. I am the king of kings. Kings then find their proper place. How? By obeying the greater government of Christ Jesus raised from the dead. And they that are with the lamb are called and chosen and faithful. Called by the spirit of God chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world, believing in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is fully Trinitarian. Those chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, are called by the Spirit of God. These follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. I note then that our salvation is Trinitarian. There is no division among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in the work of redemption. 
Some people believe that God chose everybody. He wants everybody to be saved, so he chose them all. Jesus Christ died for everybody. Then the Spirit of God applies redemption only to some people. Does that make sense? Father chose them all. Son died for them all. The Spirit only applies to some that God chose and the Son died for. Does that make any sense? It's dividing the Godhead. The Spirit is not in cooperation with the Son and the Father in that case. If Christ died for some, the some will be called. And if they were called, you can mark it down, they were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. There is no division in the Godhead concerning our salvation. They are called, they are chosen, they are faithful. Let us rejoice in our faithful triune Savior. No arm can save but God's. Trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Receive his spirit. Be called into his kingdom. Confirm your calling and election. Notice here again in sacramental phrase, verse 15. The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Again, the word sitteth means to sit on a cathedral, on a throne, to rule and sit as a queen. She is the queen of nations, of peoples, of multitudes, and of tongues. She's there in her cathedral, ruling over them all. This false wife claims dominion only suited to whom? The one she says is her husband and is not. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. She says, no, I'm queen. I rule here over the kings of the earth. But she will be destroyed. She will not last. The judgment of the great whore will come forth. The waters are these nations. The false wife claims the Lamb's dominion. Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, has the true and right dominion. She has a false and usurped dominion. The ten horns, verse 16, tells us, which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall what? They're going to turn on her. They're going to hate the whore. There is a day coming when all the, the lands, the kings, the nations of popedom will turn against their Lord, the Pope, and they will destroy him. Let us pray then, thy kingdom come. When we pray thy kingdom come, one of the things we ought to pray for is that God would cause the great commission to be fulfilled. What is that? That God would make all the nations Christ's disciples. Who has the dominion at this time? Is it Christ over them? No. It's this woman. This woman who professes to be the queen. This woman has the dominion, and yet God is saying there is a time when they will turn on her, when they will reject her dominion. Let us pray to that end. Let us hope in the promise of God that those who hate and persecute the body of Christ, especially those under the dominion of this whore, that they might become the disciples of Christ as well. They shall make her desolate and naked. They shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Her riches will be carried away, the riches that she stole from the nations of the earth. 
they'll be given back to them. Her defenses will be ruined. That's the idea of nakedness, nothing to defend you. Her body will be eaten, quite ironic considering their view of the Lord's table. Her city shall be burned with fire. No place to run, no place to hide, no city, no wealth, no power. It's all going to be gone. And as we'll see in the succeeding chapters, this is what paves the way for the millennium. If you want to see a golden age, the whore has to die. The nations have to turn on her. They have to burn the city. They have to reject her. And then comes the millennium. God, we are told in verse 17, hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. Who is it that rules over kings? Who owns and holds their heart in his hands? The Lord. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. God hath put it in their hearts. This word put is very interesting. It means to give something freely as a gift, as a gracious gift. God, by his grace, put it in their hearts to do what he told them to do so long ago, burn her with fire, tear down her defenses, leave her desolate, withdraw from her, consume her flesh with fire. That's what you should do to this whore. What have they been doing? Committing spiritual whoredom with her. They've been causing all their people to do the same. So now God, by his grace, puts it in their heart gives them a new purpose, a new will, a new heart to do his will. For a time, God had prophesied that they would give their kingdom unto the beast, as we saw in verse 13. God had a purpose in their sins. That purpose is concluded, and now they turn on her. I note then that the apostasy of the beast, the mega whore, the Roman tyranny of both pagan and papal Rome has an appointed fulfillment in God's oracles. It will come to an end. It's not going to go on forever. There is an appointed season, and after that is the eternal kingdom. Let us not lose heart. God's kingdom shall triumph. The kingdom of the devil, the man of sin, and the whore shall all be conquered in God's due time. Notice, Verse 18, the woman which thou sawest is that great city, that mega city. That's what the word cosmopolitan means. A world-class city, only she rules the world, this city does. She rules the nations of the earth. That great city, not that little Jewish place out in Palestine of Syria called Jerusalem. No, not in the least. This is the mega city, the world conquering city. This woman sits upon the Roman power. She is descended from that beast, the kingdoms of the ancient world, and all of their power pouring into her. Literally, the apostle says that city, I mean that great city, I mean that city constantly having queendom. That's what it means. She reigneth over the kings of the earth. The word reigneth means she possesses a queendom, not a kingdom. Against the order of nature, she rules over the kings of the earth, but she herself is but a woman. 
She ought to be submitted to her husband. She ought to be obedient. But what is she doing? Ruling the world. The perfect feminist. God will undo this great city. She shall be burned with fire. And then comes the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thus far, the exposition of Revelation chapter 17, verses 10 through 18.